0: Hey everybody, welcome to Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark. And before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for sending us their podcaster essentials kit. Comes with a lira mic and an incredible set of headphones. Astrid Young comes from a long line of creative people. Her father is legendary writer, journalist, and author, Scott Young. And her brother is, well, her brother's Neil Young. Those are some tough acts to follow. Astrid talks about growing up and getting into music in her own way, and she describes what it was like when Neil asked her to sing on Harvest Moon. There's some great stories about The Unplugged Show and Road Rock, but she's also done a lot of cool work with Nancy Wilson, Hart, and her own solo work, which is clearly different from her brother's music. She's played metal, desert rock, folk, and some pretty wild alternative music. And she wrote and starred in a movie and wrote a biography which she is considering expanding on with the help of her brothers. Her latest album features Victor DeLorenzo on drums and the Integratron. Definitely look into the album and the structure. Give her a follow on Instagram at WandaPlez to keep up with what she's up to. Follow us at Performance ANX. Rate and review us because it helps us get in front of people. We accept coffee at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. Merch is at performanceanx.threadless.com and now buckle up because there's a lot going on on this one with Astrid Young on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
1: Hi, I'm Astrid Young and you're listening to Performance Anxiety. Um, Okay, I don't know what else to say. (laughs) Okay, okay. Try to get a little mood lighting happening, man. It was uh, there. We go. You know, backfired.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got this weird floating mic thing that it'll pop in and out of the meeting. It's so
1: <laughs> is that what happens when you use the backgrounds?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's uh, a, a, back, a photo I took a little while ago, so I figured, oh, let me see if that'll work, and now it's doing weird things to everything else.
1: <laughs> this
0: weird floating mic head. Randomly, uh,
1: it's like magic.
0: It is weird, <laughs> terrible magic. That's so. Oh, I can't stop doing that. It's so weird. How you doing?
1: I'm I'm good. Good. A little t- tired and overworked, and I've got a million different uh, projects going on right now. So sounds like it. Uh, yeah. I mean. Kind of story in my life. I just find it hard to say no to cool things.
0: So. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said yes to this. So,
1: yeah, it's cool. absolutely. Well, you know, uh, just the idea of performance anxiety is kind of uh, it. It was intriguing to me. Let me let me put it that way. <laughs> oh, good.
0: It's you know, it's funny because the show has morphed a lot since I started. I've done. I've got almost 200 episodes, and it started out with that being the subject and I would just keep forgetting to ask people that. So, so it's just, it's kind of morphed into instead of just focusing (laughs) on performance anxiety, it's just kind of getting really cool stories of, of being an an artist.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and I don't think if, I mean, I, I don't really often get stage fright anymore, but I, there's a, a few uh, notable situations that I've had that have been incredibly anxiety provoking. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think you can be an artist and not have at least a few of those in your career. I mean, if you haven't, then obviously you're probably still living in your mother's basement.
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I know yeah. I don't have anywhere near the, uh the career that, that you've had or a lot of my guests have had, I was a photographer for a bunch of years, but I went to college for it and taking my photos and bringing them into class was enough for me. I mean, cause we would bring them up and then the entire class would critique them. And when I got up to, to school and I was just not prepared for that. So
1: <laughs> it, it's, it's tough when all eyes are on you, you know, and you, and you, feel like you got to do something. Like I, I didn't start performing solo until I don't know, I, I guess probably, uh, in my thirties and it was, it's really hard, especially when you're the only person up there, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think it's a really good, ex- even if you never intend to do that, regularly if you play in a band or or usually with a group of people i think it's a good exercise for everybody to have because once you've done that enough you just like i don't think you'll ever be afraid to make it make a fool of yourself
0: (laughs) oh i know i i I 100 agree i did something similar to that i took I, i did improv for a little bit Oh yeah. And cool. So I, I went and I, I took a class in DC because I, I live in Virginia and uh it was amazing. Once I didn't care about you know sounding dumb or, or making a fool of myself on the stage, it changed a lot of things. Not just that, but you know, in my whole life.
1: Yeah. It was yeah.
0: transformative. It was it was unbelievable.
1: It's Rugged. interesting how that happens. You just get pushed you get pushed to do things that you didn't even think that you were capable.
0: Exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> wow, well, did I really just do that? Whoa.
0: <laughs> exactly. And it's- but
1: especially when you're live, you know, there's, there's no take backs, right? So yeah. you just got to kind of roll with it. It's just like, oh, yeah, I meant to do that.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All part of the plan. That's it. Thank you so much for joining me. This is fantastic. Okay.
1: Do you, um, oh, what network are you on? I'm on the, are oh, you on Spotify?
0: I'm on Spotify. I'm on yeah. uh, like every major uh, pod catcher there is. I'm part of the, uh, uh, with uh, Long May You Young, I'm, we're part of the same podcast network, Pantheon Podcasts. We all go through the same network and they th- throw the RSS feeds out and they take care of all that for us. So it's uh, cool. it's been really awesome. Really happy I joined that network. So a lot of cool shows. So what I like to do is to find out a little bit about your history to kind of find out how you got to where you are now. And your history is a little different than a lot of guests that I've had. So (laughs) you come from an incredibly creative family. And a lot of people know that uh, your brother's Neil and his entire catalog of work but I don't think unless they've really delved into to Neil, they might not know about your dad and how creative he was and what he did. So he was right. a very well-known writer in Canada.
1: Yeah, correct. Uh, he was uh, best known as a sports writer, actually. Uh, he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Wow. He is still considered by some to be the only hockey writer there was. He wrote for Associated Press. He wrote about 45 books. Uh, Some of them, some of them bestsellers that were biographies of, of famous sports people. Like he wrote two books with Punch Jimlock, who was the, uh, uh, manager and coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And, um, also one with, uh, um, God, I'm so bad. I'm not a sports fan, you know? I mean, <laughs> I, I grew up around this stuff. And honestly, he used to take me to the racetrack all the time. And that's really the only sport that I gra- that I gravitated to is, was uh, thoroughbred horse racing. Oh, but wow. he was actually pretty high up in the, in the thoroughbred hor- horse racing circles, too. He uh, he won the two highest awards in, in thoroughbred horse racing oh, wow. for articles that he wrote on a jockey named Lafitte Pinquet. So, uh, in the, in the United States, it was the eclipse award and, uh, in Canada, the equivalent of the eclipse award is a sovereign award and he won both those awards. So, wow, um, that's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I became a pretty good hand handicapper by the time I was about 10 or 11 years old, <laughs> uh, but you know, largely in, in large part because of my father's sports career and you know, the company that he was keeping. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah no he was uh he was on hockey night in Canada he used to do the uh, player um interviews in between the periods and uh he was on a lot of TV shows um or like not just sports shows, but like news shows, and okay. he was the anchor anchor on a, a late night news show back in the '70s on a Toronto radio or TV station. And oh, cool! Did a lot of radio, yeah. And he was he was everywhere for a while. It's he was kind of a household name, and certainly uh, guys my age and even a generation younger probably all read his books. Uh.
0: Right. Was he really into music or your parent, your, your mom really into music?
1: Actually, my father would freely admit that he was the only one in the family that had no musical talents at all, <laughs> which is, which is why he became a writer. But, um, my family, outside of my dad, my family's pretty musical. I mean, we all play. My uncle, you know, could pretty much play anything on piano, and he had various instruments lying around his house. And you know, they'd get together and sing. My my cousin, uh, my uncle's daughter, was an opera singer. Oh wow! Uh, you know, my grandmother on my father's side was uh, you know she played piano and used to go go and play at the Legion, and you know she. Be up partying all night, playing piano and singing songs with people, and you know that's just who she was. And I guess you know, so in, in a way, I guess that's uh, I come by it honestly.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um, when did it really start making an impact in your life? When did you start noticing music?
1: Well, um, I started playing music when I was well. They had me in music lessons when I was like a toddler. Wow. My parents did so. I could read music before I could actually read books.
2: <laughs> wow. So
1: it's always been part of my life. And I started playing piano when I was six. And then I started playing wind instruments shortly after that. So I played flute and then, uh, but my main instrument was oboe and English horn most of my, uh, through most of my early career. And I didn't really get into rock and roll until I was about 15. Oh man. Yeah. So what, so what was
0: it that got you into rock? What What album hit you?
1: Oh, Black Sabbath, actually, you know, and I was so deep in the classical world, too, and there was so much about um Black Sabbath and and Judas Priest too that had like a lot of classical overtones to it and it was just fascinating to me that it like I was it, even in the classical world I was into heavier stuff like um Stravinsky and uh, Tchaikovsky and stuff like that so he- like kind of really really heavy bombastic you know music yeah and which was considered really revolutionary for its time but uh, so I I don't really think that there's much of a, a you know, it, it, I don't think it's too different from where I went to. Of course, I like all kinds of music, but that's what really got me into rock and roll was the uh, was uh, was heavy bands like that. I mean, before that, I think I used to think that most music with uh, with vocals was boring.
2: Oh, really? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was much more into uh, into orchestral music and classical music and stuff like that, but. Uh, okay.
0: So when did you start singing? Since if you thought vocals were boring, when did the singing for you come in?
1: Yeah, the singing. I mean, I never even considered myself to be a singer until I moved to Los Angeles. And what happened there is, uh, you know, I went to Mm, kind of find my way in the music business and you know I've had a couple of bands in Toronto that I was singing in but I still really relied on the guitar I I I felt really weird not having something like that you know like what do I do with my hands what do I do where do I go you know the guitar you kind of know what what's going on but um And when I got to Los Angeles, of course, I didn't have any gear. So I ended up in a, in a heavy metal band called sacred child. And, uh, even though that was kind of a double-edged sword. But uh, but one thing, almost right away, I realized it's like, if I'm just a singer, I don't have to carry any gear. <laughs> I can just show up. This is great. I don't have to load and unload and worry about my crap at the end of the night and you know, make sure things are working and buying strings and that kind of crap. So it's like, I thought, hey, this is great. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: See, of all the attentions on you on stage, that's a perk
1: yeah <laughs> yeah and you know and and eventually i, I you know i brought uh, some keyboards into the into the situation and and uh started playing guitar again a few years later but yeah i didn't play for many many years when i was in la so was
0: sacred child an existing band or did, did you create that with the band members
1: oh god no um <laughs> I can't take responsibility for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I I was in in Los Angeles. I think I'd been there for about a month or so, maybe a little over a month, and I was staying with the, my friend Ellen, who's who I've known since I was a kid. And, uh, I had, uh, in, in LA, they have a, a music magazine called music connection that has free musician ads. And, uh, so I put an ad in music connection saying, you know, singer, blah, blah, blah. What, I can't remember what else I said. Anyway, got a bunch of calls, did a bunch of auditions. And, uh, this was one of the uh, calls that I got was for this band, uh, sacred child, and they were already signed. Right. Okay. And what had happened is they had fired their singer, who was a guy, actually a guy named David Reese, and uh, they were looking to replace him. So the record had already been made and then they fired the singer and basically they needed to hire somebody to come in and recut all his tracks. So Ian, I walk and I got like hair out (laughs) to here and, (laughs) you know, anyway, so I got the gig, which is kind of odd to me too. Well, it was, it was really good in a lot of ways too, because where I came from the market that I came from in Toronto, like everybody knew who I was. Everybody knew who my family was. Everybody yeah. knew what the association was and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't get arrested. I could get everybody in the music business down to see my shows and they did not give a shit. You know, yeah, I, I was yeah. like a novelty act, you know, it didn't matter which way you tossed it up anyway. So when I went to LA, I was just like determined that I was just gonna, not going to tell anybody what was up. Okay. So I got this gig and then, you know, of course we started rehearsing and then we went in the studio and uh, about six months after that, a Canadian magazine called music express actually did this big article on the band. And uh, of course outed me.
2: Oh, and
1: no. So the, the record company guy comes walking in with a copy of music express, you know, saying, what's this? Why didn't you tell me, you know? And oh, it's just like, hey i was just happy that you guys like me for me you know yeah maybe and maybe you know in retrospect it was the hair (laughs) uh, because to be honest they weren't really interested in having a, a girl in the band or at least uh i mean the record company guy was he really liked me and uh the guy who was the he was the producer and uh, also the rhythm guitar player and the primary writer in the band. He really wanted me in the band, but the rest of the guys weren't really keen on it. You know, Uh, they tried hard, but in the end it was like, it was really tough, especially when the truth came out. And then when we started getting press and stuff like that, it was all about me and here's these guys who've had this band. And I mean, I can understand it to a certain degree, you know, they worked really hard on this band and, yeah. and the record and stuff like that. And then I come in and pull a, re- pull the rug out from under them, which is not my intention. Certainly. Right. Right. And, you know, I, I didn't write a lick of anything on that record. I can't take credit for any of that and uh, nor would I want to actually, I, I mean, I actually hate the way I sounded on the record because they put me, in, I was really green at the time too. And uh, this <laughs> It just factors into the performance anxiety thing because it was it was really difficult for me to go in and cut somebody else's tracks and they were totally in the wrong key for me. Um, and I was so green at the time that I really didn't have the balls to stand up and say this is not the right key for me. But of course, also, we're not working in digital, we're working on two inch tape. So it would have been like, okay, we're not going to go back and re-record everything. Yeah. And you can't very speed it down, you know, can't very speed it down enough that it's going to make a difference or make it even make it sound right. So I just kind of bit the bullet and I did it. And I actually ended up drinking a lot in the sessions too, because I was so like freaked out. It's just like, oh my really? God, I can't, I can't do this. Oh yeah. I mean, there's one of the songs, and this only performance anxiety. It's like I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I here? Kind of thing, and and this is beyond my capability. And so I would just get hammered, you know. Wow. And there's just one song on the record that you know you're doing like kind of a scat ad lib on the outro and stuff like that. To so this day, I listen to it and I can't tell what I said. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> no idea.
2: Oh, man! yeah,
1: Yeah. I know, but it's amazing what you can get through. I mean, it was a really traumatic period in my life to believe it or not. But, uh, I'm, I'm really lucky that I had a, I had a really good publicist that talked me down off the ledge a few times. I mean, not literally, but, uh, but he, uh, you know, I, I, I was freaking out and I, I knew that I wasn't enjoying myself. And I was just like, I was almost like I was in jail or I was trapped or something. It's like, get me out of here. Oh my god. And he'd he'd be like, don't worry about it. Just, you know, just roll with it. It's not going to last forever and it's going to be good for your career. And, you know, ultimately it was. We did a lot of stuff. And, you know, we read a lot of big magazines. I mean, if you picked up a rock magazine in the late 80s, you could not pick up a rock magazine without seeing us in it. Yeah. So, you know, I knew I had made it at that point when I. There's this, uh, an Italian language magazine called HM and they had stickers in the middle, right. Uh, okay. Of singers and there was one of me and one of Bon Jovi. And I was like,
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.
1: Yeah, uh, I know it was great. So, you know, there's good and bad of it, but, uh, I learned a lot in, in, in retrospect, it, it was really an exercise in, uh, in humility. Yeah. You know,
0: so how Um, long did the, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, how long did the the group stay together with you as part of it?
1: Well, we were, we were working on a second album and uh, unfortunately after the first record, uh, the drummer quit and uh, the original bass player quit too. Now the drummer, he just had another thing. He was a, he's a photographer too. And uh, so he just wanted to focus on his photography. And uh, so we got a new bass player uh, but we had a real hard time finding a drummer and, uh, we went through a couple of drummers and it was just, it was ridiculous. It was so hard in the studio, just trying to do tracks with these, these cats that were you know, nice guys, but it wasn't really cutting it. And I think in the end, uh, Chuck Rosa, who was the uh, producer, he was good friends with Eric Singer. Oh, he's yeah. uh, been playing with Kiss for the past few. So Eric came in and cut a few tracks with us, but um, we never actually finished the whole record and it was, we were working on it for, I, I have to say a good year. Oh, wow. And, uh, during that time, I, um, you know, of course I'm just doing my thing. I was, uh, at a party jamming with some friends of mine. It was, I can't remember whose birthday party it was, but anyway, I got jumping up on stage and I was singing in, some ACDC songs with this band and, uh, And Bill O'Coin was there, who was Kiss's manager at one time and Billy Idol and whatnot. And and Bill came up and he's like, I want to sign you. I want to put you in the studio, this, that, the other thing. You're amazing, blah, blah. So um, anyway, so he talked me into quitting Sacred Child, which, you know, didn't really take much convincing, to be (laughs) honest, but but what ended up happening was... It was good and bad because you know the the thing with Bill never really went anywhere. Unfortunately, he had a drug problem and he kind of went off the rails in the middle of it. So he basically, you know, what ended up happening is he put me in the studio with a bunch of a uh, bunch of cats, right? Like studio guys and mm-hmm. whatnot. And uh, so I ended up with a bunch of demos and no band and no manager. You know, wow. I mean, in the end, so here I am, <laughs> high and dry. You know, it's not—it's not like that. That's never happened to anybody. And to—to to be honest, it's—it's it's just like one thing in a long line of other things. You know, yeah. I've never had good—I've never had good luck with management before. It's just like sometimes they. I don't know. I'm not convinced that uh, I've never been lucky enough to have, like my brother had was lucky enough to have a guy like Elliot Roberts on his side. I, I just never, Yeah. I never found that person.
0: Yeah. A guy like Elliot Roberts is hard to find.
1: It really is. He was one of a kind for sure.
0: Yeah. When did you start writing your own music? Was it before Sacred Child or during, after?
1: Well, I've, I've written plenty of music when I was, uh, when I was a kid, but, you know, of course, most of it sucked. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you got to suck for a long time before you start getting halfway good.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm so. still waiting for that to happen here. <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see. Maybe well,
1: then... <laughs> the thing is, it's like with, with the classical background, too, I got really hung up on the idea of perfection. And that I think really hindered my progress as a player and a songwriter, because I was trying I was reaching for this thing that just wasn't me and it wasn't yeah. attainable. I mean, I was looking at singers like Ian Gillen and Glenn Hughes and uh and Robert Plant and stuff like that. And and those were the singers that I wanted to be like. But my voice didn't sound like theirs. Yeah. Much to my chagrin. But
2: uh <laughs> a lot and, of
0: other people. But, you
1: know, think. it it wasn't until I started getting into artists like Kate Bush and Nina and even, you know, she's a kind of a punk, uh, a punk artist, yeah. but, um, they have incredible voices, but they use their voice like an instrument much more so than, you know, they don't strive for perfection. And, and I also had like another really good friend of mine, Nancy Wilson from heart. She, she told me one time as we were talking about this and she goes, it's the imperfections in your voice that make it unique. And that's what people gravitate to. She goes, what if everybody had like perfect voices that would be really boring. And and I thought about it.
0: yeah, she's re- she's right, so... Yeah, you know. exactly.
1: exactly. From then on, I didn't give a shit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, so... I'm looking at a discography here, and I see Sacred Child in 86, and I'm also seeing it got re-released in 89. And then the next thing is is Blackthorn in 94. Well, 92... All right, so this is... I'm looking at this website here, and everything's a little out of order. So, all right, so... 86 with sacred child and then 92 you do background vocals with your brother on harvest moon. How did that come about? Was that, did he call you up and say, Hey, I want you on background vocals or how did that transpire? Cause I, I know my brother and I, it's, it's kind of hard for us to say, Hey, why don't you come and help me out doing things?
1: It's um, well, it was uh, certainly unexpected. I, uh, you know, I always share, I I spent a lot of time in the studio and I would always share what I'd done with my brother. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, of course, hoping for feedback, which sometimes I would get, and sometimes I wouldn't, but, uh, um, I was actually just up for Thanksgiving one year and we were sitting around after dinner and he whips out his guitar and he says, Oh, I've been in the studio lately. And, uh, I was wondering, what what would you sing on this? If you were going to sing back up on this song, what would you sing? So he plays like War of Man, okay. which is on Harvestman. And uh, I mean, you could have knocked me over. <laughs> just like yeah. that. I, I was like, for, in my mind, I mean, the thoughts are going through my mind. is just like, oh my God, seriously? He's really <laughs> asking me this? And, you know, it's it's one thing to hang out with your family and stuff like that. But, you know, it all gets really real. I mean, it's like he is who he is right so right. in in that moment he's not my brother anymore he's like oh he's asking me this guy is asking me to actually sing up sing on a record right wow so now it's do or die I've gotta like pull this off and I don't even remember what I did but obviously it was enough yeah because he said well why don't you stick around a few extra days and Nicolette's gonna be here and and you you guys can sing together
2: on no we
1: Wow. And, uh, and so that's how that happened. And, uh, so that's the first time that I sang with him. And, and, uh, so I was in the studio singing with Nicolette and, uh, it's really interesting because as long as, you know, I, I've been practically living in a recording studio since I was, you know, 14 and I've been around them all my life, uh, because the totally different approaches to recording, like I, um, I like, you know, the kind of pristine, sterile studio environment. Okay. You know, punching in and comping and stuff right. like that. That's kind of what I'm used to, right? But he likes to do one take of everything, and uh, he hardly ever does a second take. And I think I might have gotten a second take on some of the stuff that I did, but. Oh, very wow. few times very wow. few times so i quickly learned that okay you got to make the first one good because it might be the last one you get
0: <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> man that, that there's some performance anxiety right there
1: no pressure yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors
1: But uh, you know, but there's something to that too. You know, I mean, the more I, I, you know, when you're in the studio too, and I, I mean, I've spent enough hours in the studio to know that you can continue to hammer on, on a, a track or a part or something like that, and at some point, you know, it's you know, the law of diminishing returns says that you just got to stop because it's not going to get any better. Right. But it'll get better up to a point, and then, like, even last night, I was in a studio doing a piano track and. And you know, I dicked around, did a couple of passes and then I did one pass, punched one part in, it was perfect. And I'm listening to it. And I had this thought in my head is just like, maybe I should just do another pass just for the hell of it. And then I talked myself out of it because I thought, no, I know what's going to happen. I'm going go to go into do another pass. It's not going to be perfect. I'm going to want to do it again. And we're going to be here for another three hours. Yeah. So I was just like, forget it. Yep. It's good.
0: Going down it's that it's rabbit good. hole. Just,
1: Bounce my tracks and let me be on my own. And honestly, it was beautiful. I I laid it into my track today and and I was like, oh, it's just, it's, the sound was so perfect. It just almost made me weep.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, man. I'm going to get to your new music here in a little bit, but the Unplugged album he did, that's one of my favorite. It is actually my favorite unplugged performance of the whole MTV unplugged genre. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I, I heard that was actually the second attempt at doing that. Yeah. So w- true.
2: what,
0: what happened? I, I think I heard he was, that Neil was under the weather or something. They're having false start issues or, or, or something.
1: Yeah, he was, um, he wasn't feeling good. He actually almost, um, like, I think he was feeling like he was getting a cold or something like that. And, uh, so he, he had actually canceled the uh gig and we were like me nicolette tim drummond i think that's it anyway the three of us we were on our way to the airport in the limo and then we got the call that the gig was off so
2: oh wow Because
1: deal wasn't feeling well so we decided to go to lunch since we had the car and <laughs> uh we were just pulling into the parking lot of the, of the restaurant. And then we get the call, Oh, the gig's back on, go to the airport. So we go to the airport and, um, I guess he rallied and, uh, got that together, but, uh, we did the sound check the night before and it was fantastic. It sounded beautiful. I mean, Ed Sullivan theater, just yeah. gorgeous. It really sounds great in there, but in the meantime, before, like we couldn't leave our stuff set up because Katie Lang was coming in the next morning to do her unplugged show. Uh, so we had to rip everything down. They had to rip the, the board down and all our settings and stuff like that. And it's uh, never the same when you do that. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't think anybody felt good about that. I mean, I was a little leery thinking, ah, uh, this just doesn't sound good. Anyway, yeah. so and of course, you know, with the theater full of people, it's, it's going to sound different, too. So when we started to play, I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't the same and Neil wasn't feeling it. So he stopped and started songs quite a few times and we eventually got through the show, but he, he wasn't happy with it. And it's not that it was terrible. Like I I don't think by any stretch that it was awful, but if, and you probably know this for yourself too, if you don't feel good in the moment, you're never going to look at that show with any fondness. You're yeah. always going to go back to that moment and, and think the worst. Yeah. And honestly, he hates looking at stuff like that. He doesn't want to listen to it. He didn't want anybody else to either. So he, he bought the show back from, from MTV. And wow. uh, we set up another one uh, in, in Los Angeles, which was much better, but uh, there was a lot of drama going. <laughs> <laughs> at that point. it was, And, you know, and then, and the performance anxiety continues because he changed the set list like right before the show. And suddenly there was like two or three songs on the set that we'd never rehearsed that I didn't know, you know, and also he had thrown helpless in there too, which I'd never done with them before, but you know, it wasn't just that we were doing helpless. It was me and Nicolette and him and that's it. Oh, wait a minute. I think maybe, maybe Nils was, was uh, playing some accordion on it or something like that. Got it. Like talk about being put on the spot. Here you go. Yeah, uh, and and the other songs um, that I didn't know, uh, Nicolette actually had to sing the the part to me in my ear right before we were singing it. So if you actually watch Unplugged. And you'll see sometimes the camera cuts back to us and we'll yes. be just like going back to our microphones, but that's what was happening. Oh, she wow. would lean over and she would sing my part into my ear and then we go back to our mics and we do it. Right. Wow. And this happened like all, like a couple of songs, I think. Uh, yeah. So.
0: <laughs> that's wild. So I noticed that, The show seemed to be split up into two sections. It was like the solo Neil section, and then Neil with the band. Is it was that by design, or was it editing, or how did that come about?
1: No, that's that was the show. Um, That and but the thing is, before we did the show, what was planned? It was supposed to be the whole band the whole way through. But that's what he did to change it. He, uh, you know, just like we get the set list, and it's just like, okay, well, the band's not playing. On the, in the first half of the show at all, and then wow. "Helpless" was the segue, and then the full whole band came out. Right? Wow. So yeah, this that is that was a surprise, yeah. you know. And Neil's like that too. I mean, he just <laughs> I I uh, over the years that I spent singing with him and being on the road with him, you just kind of have to be ready for anything. Wow. You know
0: that? Yeah, I I imagine, and I would have if, if it was me. My I know my nerves would be up doing the second take of this this show you're on mtv you're getting thrown songs that you're not familiar with and then it's just four of you on stage that's got to be nerve-wracking
1: oh it's totally nerve-wracking but you know i mean you're there in front of it's not like you can you know say oh give me another go it's not like being in the studio you've got people out there and not only people, I mean, this is Los Angeles. You got to understand. So you've got half of the fucking music industry is there. Right. Right. I mean, every big league guy in, in the music business was in that room that night, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, and the guys from REM were there, Peter Buck and Michael Stipe. And it was just, I can't even remember. the whole thing is a blur actually.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I, I, yeah, I,
1: But, you know, the other thing is, too, it's like when we were in the studio doing Harvest Moon, uh, Linda Ronstadt did these long ooze in the, as you know. Yeah. And if you didn't know, they are so ridiculously long that it's almost inhumanly possible. It's almost not possible to actually do it. Wow. You know, for your typical singer, for your typical singer anyway. Right. And uh, when we were rehearsing and stuff like that, I was always like, I can't, I can't sing that note that long. And Nicolette's like, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And like going over techniques and uh, things like that and how to do it. And then actually doing it in the show uh, at Unplugged and not knowing whether I would get through it or not. But the first time I did it is just like, oh, yeah, no problem. You know, wow. and now and now I could hold a note for like oh my god.
0: <laughs> oh so, okay, so there you we... could go away and have a bite and
1: come back <laughs> and I'd still be still be on that note, you know?
2: I wanna see you dance again because I'm still in love with you.
0: Okay, so that reminds me, I wanted to ask, were you familiar with everybody in the band? Because Harvest Moon was basically most of the Stray Gators, and then Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor. Did you know everybody, or were you kind of having to get familiar with everybody during the recording sessions?
1: Well, most... Most of them I knew or had met at least a few times uh, growing up. You know, I mean, a lot of those people have been in Neil's life uh, right from the beginning. Ben Keith and Spooner was uh, was new. I mean, he didn't. That's the first time that I had ever met him was uh, on Unplugged. Okay. And but you know, Tim Drummond, I, I've known him since I was a little kid. He's been around, and uh, yeah, so
0: okay. So there, you were a little more comfortable in that situation than if you're going in, not knowing anybody,
1: I suppose. And, you know, being, having been on the road with my brother, I also knew the crew very well. Yeah, Like I knew, I knew Tim Mulligan and, uh, I knew David Briggs and, uh, all his other road guys and stuff like that. So that was, uh, there was a level of comfort there too, because I knew that these people were, they're like family to me. So I, I, certainly didn't feel like I was being judged or anything like right. that and uh, even though i was you know i had a little bit of imposter syndrome there uh,
2: oh really oh. <laughs> i'm very
1: lucky to have to have had nicolette because she really um she really kind of took me under her wing and she told me yeah. She t- she told me the truth about things and and uh, what it was all about and she encouraged me a lot you know I've had a lot of people in my life that have done that for me musically you know when I didn't think that I was really up to the task and not just within that too you know I mean I play keyboards too but and I know a lot of people that are much better players than I am, but these are the same people that will stand up and push me to do things that I didn't think that I could do, you know, send me out on auditions, just, you know, here, take my gear, go get the gig. Right. Oh yeah. You know, I've been really lucky like that. And I think if you don't push yourself, you'll never know if you can do it or not. Like, I, I've made a complete fool of myself on more than one occasion. But, you know, after you've done that once or twice, you're really not afraid to do it again. Yeah, <laughs>
0: that's for sure. <laughs> so this pushing yourself, was that how you started the Brainflower album? Because I'll be damned if I can find that album.
1: Oh well, it, it never, it never got released and okay. I can send you, I can send you some tracks. I'm actually, uh, working on reviving that repertoire actually. Oh, cool. um, and I'm probably going to do uh, a film of it. The place that I was recording last night is a theater. And I was just talking to the owner about that. Cause he's all wired up with cameras and, and great microphones and beautiful piano and stuff like that. Oh, so nice. what happened around that time is that, um, I, of course, had been in rock bands and every time I did a little demo, of course, that's what we used to call them back yeah. in the day, <laughs> demos and on cassettes, yep. you know, uh, so every time I do uh, a new demo, I'd send it out to the usual suspects in the, in our world. And, yeah. um, so I get this phone call one day from Lenny Warnicker at Warner Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, he says, uh, yeah got your demo tape. He says that he says, I really like your voice and your songs are okay. But he says, I, I just don't think that I think it's going to get lost in the shuffle. There's too much out there that actually kind of sounds like this and it just doesn't stand out for me. And, I, and at that point, I was having a major situation with my band. I was just so sick of dealing with guitar players and having volume wars in rehearsal and stuff Uh like that. So I I was just ready to beg the whole thing. And and he just caught me at that moment where I said, I said, you know what? He said, I said, I'm done with rock bands. I'm going to just play piano, play with a string quartet and maybe go play in some coffee houses or something (laughs) like that, you know? Yeah. And he said, he said, well, that sounds really interesting. Uh, Let me know if you want to do some recording, because I'd be really interested in that. And I went, yeah, okay, bye. And and And, uh, about two weeks later, I'm sitting in the dentist's office, just waiting, you know, things going through my mind. And and, and it's just like, hey, wait a minute. Did he offer me a a recording deal (laughs) or something? And so I got up and I ran down the hall to the payphone and I called his office and his assistant, uh, picks up the phone and she said, Oh, Astrid, I hear you're going to be doing some recording with us. And I was just like, uh. <laughs> 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 on a, based on an idea wow. and this is not the first time that this has happened to me. Okay. So they put me in the studio and unfortunately, uh, uh, Lenny Warneker left, uh, Warner's to go to DreamWorks to go start DreamWorks, so uh, I kind of get left behind. But uh, you know, you've you've never lived as a musician unless you've been kicked in the kicked in the head a couple of times. So yeah, so yeah, that's that's uh, that that was one of the first times I had to kind of. And honestly, the idea wasn't fully developed, but uh, I found a great arranger composer, this guy named Bob Parr, who I worked with, and he and I did some beautiful beautiful work together and uh yeah I will share it with you because it's it's really really gorgeous stuff yeah. and uh... putting love in its place and holding
2: me
1: there are things about it that are not perfect and stuff like that. And I wouldn't really want to revisit the recording because it was too complicated. Okay. Um, I, I think probably it would benefit from a live performance and I did a few live performances of it back then too. At one point I had, uh, just myself playing piano. I had another piano player, a drummer, a percussionist, two background singers, a string quartet, a bass player, who was also the conductor wow and uh and uh there was something else you a saxophone player a sax player yeah oh wow So I know. that's
0: <laughs> quite the group that... <laughs> my god it
1: was Oh, it was fantastic it was great fun i mean it's like rock band times 100 you know because you've got more people and you got more going on and just like the alchemy of like making it all happen and of course there's always the uh the uh, chance that it's all
0: going to turn into a big train wreck in any <laughs> one moment. So there's that too, right? <laughs> That's always exciting. That's what I love. That is. So all right. So and th- at this point, I see that you do some background vocals on Nancy Wilson's "Live at McCabe's" album. How did you meet Nancy, and, and what, what, what have you been? What have you worked on with her?
1: OK, so I met Nancy when I was we were uh, touring with uh, Booker T and the MGs and um, we were playing in we were in Ireland. We played at Sling Castle in Ireland. And uh, there are a lot of like Nancy and Cameron Crowe and Johnny Depp and um, God, there's tons of people that were there that just like happened, I guess, to be in Dublin at the same time. So they all came to the show. Anyway, that's the first time I met Nancy. I'd known Cameron from before because he was a friend of Larry Johnson who has, you know, worked with Neil for many, many years. Right. And uh so I knew Cameron from way back in the day, like before you know, probably around like Fast Times the Ridge Von High era. Oh wow. So, okay. <laughs> so I started chatting, he introduced me to Nancy, we hit it off, we kept in touch, we hung out together in Los Angeles. Turns out we have some mutual friends in uh uh recording studios and stuff like that. And this little place that she was doing some demos at was uh, owned by a friend of mine, and you know, one thing led to another, and yeah, she asked me to sing on that thing, which was which is really cool. But I, I had done can't remember this before or after, but I, I sang backup for Ann and Nancy at the Bridge School one year.
0: Oh, cool. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was fun. And you want to talk about performance anxiety. Okay. It's like there is nothing more frightening than standing next to Ann Wilson while she's singing.
0: That's got to be incredible.
1: <laughs> it, it really was. But honestly, it's like we rehearsed and it was like real casual and like... Um, you know, I got the tracks beforehand. So I knew the parts. So we're rehearsing in the, in the hotel room and that's all cool. But then you go out on stage and it's like, First of all, they put Nancy like way on the other side of the stage to me. So she's like 30 feet away. <laughs> it's like, where's my friend? <laughs> my buddy?" <laughs> you know? and, and Nancy's, or Anne's standing next to me. And as soon as she opens her mouth to sing, it's just like every single hair on my body stood up and it's like, <sighs> like oh. that, you know? And not only that's at Mountain View at the, uh, at uh, Shoreline Amphitheater there. And it's, I played a lot of amphitheaters before, but this one's really weird because for some reason you can see like the first 20 rows it's like they're right in your face. Oh, like, really? right there. So here I am standing out front and it's like making me want to melt into a puddle <laughs> of, you know, <laughs>
2: something right. <laughs>
1: and, uh, and, uh, so, but I got through. but it's really funny because like, I think the last song that we did, I had, uh, we had, we all ended on this, you know, three or four part harmony and I had a modulated note and I was just so in the moment that I forgot to, you know, go down to the other note. We're all holding the note and they're all looking at me like, <laughs> like Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
0: well you know sometimes you just get caught up in in it
1: it's really easy to do that it's really easy to do that you know because if you and i found that on on the road too it's just like you can't get distracted by shit that's going on around you you really just got to focus on what you're doing because if you start looking at the audience or if you start letting your mind wander or something like that you're going to miss things that are going by you know like in in the case of working with my brother it's like If you miss, you know, if he turns around and looks at me, like we have kind of like this telepathy thing going on when we're on stage because I know what he's thinking and I know where he wants me to go. Like if he turns around and looks at me and does something, I I can't explain it. It's a sibling thing. Oh yeah. But uh, so you can't miss any of those cues or else you're, you're, you're kind of screwed. Right. So um, I've found myself in situations where I get hung up on watching what's going on in the crowd and sling cast, Slaying castle was actually a really good uh, example because there was so much going on in the first few rows. It's like this, festival right okay and everybody's just like crammed in like they are at a festival there's no seating it's a on like this hill right mm-hmm. and they've got them all crammed in together and uh, there's people like crowd surfing and the the, <laughs> wow. the security people are pulling them out of the crowd like and pulling them behind the barrier so they could run back out you know how it goes right oh yeah so but, but then you'd see somebody kind of crowd surfing and then they disappear below the level of the crowd and you go, oh my God, what happened to that person? And then I forgot to sing a couple of times, you know? Right. So I, I figured out very quickly, it's just like, do not look at the crowd, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm um, just kind of looking up at the at the sky, which looks like it's about to start pouring rain any second, oh, but geez. at least, you know, I had something to focus on that wasn't, wasn't too terribly distracting.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can
0: only imagine how difficult it's got to be to approach that. As, as not a fan, as, you know, I'm doing a job instead of sitting there going, I've got the best seat in the
1: house. That's me. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, (laughs) You know, and there, there's other things happening on stage too. That's very distracting too. Like I love watching Booker T play. He's uh, he's just so, he's so, um, I don't know. It's almost hypnotic watching him play because he just kind of looks up and he's grooving. He's not even looking at what he's doing and he's reaching out and pulling the stops and his (laughs) feet are going and he's looking around smiling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, it just, it's just constantly amazes me how Natural it is for him, and it's funny because when I see other B three players trying to play like him, it's just like, Nah, you're not getting it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're not quite there, man. <laughs>
0: Only one Booker T. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: for sure. That's for sure. And, <laughs> so you also
0: released a couple things after Brainflower. So I wanted to find out a little bit about, and I, I don't know if I'm saying this, right is it IST? Or is it, is it the word is it like, ist. A ist? okay. Ist. I wasn't hundred yeah. percent sure. So that album is awesome.
1: It's yeah, it is. so heavy.
0: Yeah. I love it.
1: I know. Thank you. How does, I love it too.
0: How did that come together? How did you, was that a, a project that you put together or was it just uh, something um, that you found?
1: Well, what happened was I, I moved back to, my dad was not doing so well. He had had a stroke and, uh, he's kind of slipping into dementia. Mm. Uh, but at that time he was, this is like late nineties and, Mm. uh, he was doing pretty good, but I just really wanted to come back and, and hang out with him. But I was very, it was the first time I'd been back in Toronto for, you know, probably almost 20 years. And I did not want to draw attention to myself, but I still wanted to play. And so I performed under the name Ist just as a solo And I knew enough club owners at the time that would let me get away with it, which was kind of nice. And I uh, in some of these shows, I actually met some people, some other players, Dave Kiner and uh, and a guy named Dan Cornelius, um, who basically loved what I was doing. And then we got together and we started practicing. So IST is really it's just. Kind of an AKA for me. Um okay. and since the band doesn't really exist anymore, I'm probably gonna change it to Astrid Young and Ist or Astrid Young's Ist or something like that.
2: Oh okay. I haven't really
1: decided yet. But uh it's um it, it was a great band. It started out being started out as a four-piece actually. Uh oh. and I was playing 12 string and we had a bass player and then Dan playing drums and Dave Kiner playing guitar. But our bass player also worked in film production. So he, um, he missed a lot of rehearsals and he missed a few gigs. And we ended up playing a couple of gigs without a bass player, which oh, was geez. fine. But, uh, you know, one night I just decided it's like, yeah, I think I'm going to play bass tonight. So <laughs> I called up my friend Lori Green, who was in a band called Jane Doe at the time. And I said, hey, Lori, can I borrow your bass rig? and, and a bass. Cause I think I'm going to play bass tonight at my gig. And she's gone, have you ever played bass before? I said, yeah, a little bit, you know,
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see
1: that. I don't see the problem. <laughs> so she said, okay. You know, so she brought her gear down to the club and I set it up and we played as a three piece that night for the first time. And it was so tight and so heavy and so locked in. We all just kind of looked at each other and went, I guess we're a power trio,
2: you know?
0: (laughs) And then
1: poor, uh, poor Dave Delorier called us up, like about this, is the bass player about a a week later. And he says, uh, Oh, so when's the next rehearsal? And it's like, hate to break it to you, dude.
2: (laughs) Uh, Sorry.
1: But that was, you know, that was, that was an interesting exercise too, because I mean, we'd really never rehearsed with me as a bass player and I just decided to dive in and do it. And, you know, wow. it, it could have been, it could have gone really badly, but it didn't.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's amazingly heavy. Yeah. And I guess I wasn't expecting it to be as heavy as it was. It's got a great stoner rock grungy feel to it. And it's it's yep. 16 millimeter is, is, I think that might be my favorite track off that album. That is It is so heavy, I love this album.
1: like and not bleed actually uh kind of wrote the music for that but 16mm and there was a bunch of other songs on that record that i was actually already doing in my solo shows and okay. so i wrote them on 12 string and i played them just like that so we kind of translated it to like a band situation so uh and i actually i actually made another record called matinee that a lot of the same rec a lot of the same songs that are on the ist record are on matinee
0: i wanted uh, to ask about that yeah
1: yeah yeah so and that's another interesting story because i got through billy talbot actually uh billy had uh, a record company in the Netherlands that was going to release one of his solo records. Uh, And uh, he said, do you want me to send them your record and see what they say? So they decided they offered to put, put out the Is record, which I thought was great. But then I, then we booked this tour, Neil booked this tour in Europe we did like, um, did a few festivals and then we were going to do this uh, three day stint at Brixton Academy and Jonathan Demi was going to film it and all that stuff. But anyway, the whole thing ended up getting cut short. But even if we had finished the little run of dates there, it would have meant that I was only in Europe and the UK for 10 days. And I thought, well, that kind of sucks, you know, be go all the way over there and only be there for 10 days. So yeah. <laughs> I, I was ready, I was running a wine shop in Napa Valley at the time, and it was a slow day Then I just had this crazy idea. And I called up my record label in the Netherlands and I said, Hey, um, so if I gave you an acoustic record, would you book me some shows and put my record out? and to my surprise he said yes (laughs) (laughs)
2: so
1: I was like okay well I guess now I gotta go make
0: a record yeah so some of those songs are on the Ist record but some aren't so 16mm is my favorite off of Ist but I think I actually like the matinee version even better Mm
2: Of another scene, all the voices in her head
1: went crazy. The picture perfect, posturing the scenic background lingering. But
0: easy. And then Restraint is so cool because that to me that kind of sounds like uh, like Alice in Chains but with a flute.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's actually. um it's not a flute it's a mellotron i think oh cool that's even better yeah yeah like I, I played mellotron and uh it was a really cool one too and apparently uh it's a famous one i'm not really sure who owned it before but um anyway, i had the mellotron and then i also had a, a mini moog that i played on Ooh. it too which is fantastic
0: yeah. that is cool those, yeah. oh, those yeah. things are amazing yeah. 2002 was pretty busy for you, so you had those two. You worked with Neil on Are You Passionate? When did you start writing? Because around that time, you also were writing a a screenplay that kind of became a short movie, right?
1: Yeah, okay. So that particular story, which uh, I started writing in 1986, um, 85, 86, yeah. It was just an idea that I had, and it started as a short story, And then it kind of grew into, actually, I was working at a bar and these guys, these guys from a film uh, production company used to come in there all the time. And I would overhear them talking about like, I, you know, buying uh, scripts and buying, you know, uh, synopses and just stockpiling ideas and stuff like that. And I said, hey, I got a couple of great ideas. And uh, so I pitched them. I just gave them an elevator pitch on it. And they said, yeah that's great. You know, uh, so I wrote up a one page or a two page synopsis and they bought it, which was pretty cool. Oh, wow. Never got made of course. And then a few years later I decided to bite the bullet and actually write the screenplay, which I did. And, uh, and that got, I got a couple of good hits on that, I, but I was pretty green at the time and I didn't really pursue the avenues that I had available to me. I, sh- you know, should have, but uh, I had other things going on. So I wasn't paying attention anyway. So I wrote a number of screenplays. Um, but that one seemed to keep popping up here and there. When I moved back to Toronto, this is around the same time I started IST. So I had this screenplay and I thought I had to get this damn thing made, you know? So I did a little bit of research and I found this director, this Canadian director who, uh, I'm not going to say he was like, Uh, known for his high quality output, but he's (laughs) definitely known for interesting genre stuff. And the fact that he had actually finished a lot of movies, which says (laughs) a lot to me. I mean, he, I, cut You know, the artist world is like, there's a lot of talk and a lot of people don't actually finish their product projects. Right. I'm, I'm more of a doer. You know, if I have an idea, I can see the end. I have the end in sight, you know, yeah. so whenever I start something, that's the intention is to actually finish it and have something tangible at the end. Right. So this guy. His name is Julian Grant. He, I read about him in the newspaper and looked at his bio and stuff like that. And he'd like finished 18 feature films or something like that. And I thought wow. like a lot of them TV stuff and, and festival stuff, but still that's a huge feat in itself, right? Oh, sure. So he was programming this, uh, the Fantasia festival in toronto at the Bloor theater fantasia festivals like a uh, fantasy and horror and a lot of a lot of asian cinema um okay. and some of it pretty extreme stuff too so it's very you know it's very nerdy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so but i went down there and i thought okay so because he had this movie with steve gutenberg in it which was you know that was this, he was screening that and i thought okay. well based on whatever i think of this movie maybe i'll pitch him on my script so i sat through the movie And, uh, while it wasn't, you know, any epic piece of cinema, I could see how he made a lot out of what he had to work with. And I thought, this could, this could work. Right. So at the end, he's there, like with his little crowd of fanboys around him and stuff like that. And I just kind of waited for my moment and walked up to him, gave him my elevator pitch. I just kind of went, I'm so, you know, I'm Astrid young and blah, 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 blah. Here's my script. Right. And he, He took the script and he said, oh, okay. He says, well, I'll I'll, uh, give it a look and I'll give you a call. Oh, okay, fine. So I walked away and I'm thinking, oh, that's probably going in the round file. But (laughs) he called me. He called me about a week later and we got together and uh, pooled our resources, which was basically nothing.
2: (laughs) And
1: and, and, um, he thought he would be able to get funding, but uh, nobody was biting. And this was like pre 9-11. And okay. I think most uh, production companies and studios were looking for romantic comedies and like lighter okay. stuff. And this is, you know, it's about a serial killer, basically a serial killer. who's a rock star though. So it's, Ooh. um, yeah. And a woman too. Oh, that's so, awesome. But here's the thing, you know, I mean, and I knew this from a Hollywood perspective, it's like, if you want to sell a screenplay, you don't write it with a woman lead. Now, I, I believe that that's changed quite a bit because there yeah. are, but back then they didn't consider it possible for a woman to open a film, right? you know? to be like the, the, the big draw. So I had a lot of strikes going against me, but I, against me, but I figured, well, you know, we're in the indie realm, right? So what can it hurt? Anyway, he couldn't get, he couldn't get money for it. He couldn't get anybody, any bites on it at all. So he said, I still want to make this. So, um, let's rewrite it as a short documentary style. Movie oh, cool. that's following the events of the film of the screenplay, right? So, basically, a, a, a rock you shockumentary, <laughs> <A> mock, <laughs> rock, mock you rock you shockumentary. <laughs>
0: oh, you started a whole new genre
1: because we had no money. I ended up playing the lead character, which I had never intended to do. And wow. my band was in it, and my music was in it, and a lot of my friends were in it too. And we just like basically pulled it together. On a, on a shoestring. You know, I think all told the whole thing maybe cost $60,000, but I, wow. in the end, just to make a long story short, I, I really wasn't happy with the finished product. Uh, Julian ended up getting, um, he got, uh, he got contracted for a bunch of movies of the week and, you know, lifetime channel or something like that. Or I can't remember. I think he did a bunch of like Terminator tv shows or
0: something oh yeah, yeah. He, or
1: robocop that's what it was RoboCop. oh okay so he basically um oh and to complicate matters i was sick i just found out i was can't i had cancer too so i wasn't really in any oh, wow. uh, physical shape to kind of stand up for myself and watch over the project so he uh basically slapped it together like a house of cards and wow. i was never happy with it he couldn't even so we I, did still get into festivals and okay. he actually did sell it for broadcast but I, I never got any money for it. And he kind of screwed me over on a lot of levels and okay. I wanted to go back and fix it. Like, cause we had shot so much that he didn't use. And he told me that he didn't know what happened to the footage, which I think is, is bullshit. Yeah. And he, he, and he said he didn't want to revisit it at all. And it's just like, at, from my standpoint, it's just like, this could be good, and it could actually have some legs if it was fixed, but he had no interest in fixing it, even if I was doing the work. Oh, jeez. So I basically just, like, kind of, nah, written it off. Although uh, the uh, music video for Bleed is, is quite good. You can look that up on oh, YouTube. Yeah. yeah. Now, is, and is that's, this, that's part of the movie. Is yeah.
0: this, this movie, it, was it banned in four countries? yeah. <laughs> how, how, why was it banned in four countries
1: well there's a scene in the music video that is uh it's highly offensive it's really bad i mean literally when we showed it in the theater and we had a full theater too i sat in the very back row and when that particular scene came up i counted the number of people that ran out of the theater mostly women yeah but uh probably about 2025 20, people like ran out of the theater
2: wow. <laughs> Get out
1: of there fast enough
2: oh, oh my god my.
1: yeah so you know without giving it away too much it was a, it was not it was not a scene that we shot it was uh it was footage from another short film that we got the rights to
0: oh wow okay
1: uh the filmmaker is german i think i'm not sure i can't remember who it is uh anyway
0: uh... now you've done some other really interesting things that would give me performance anxiety like the song you did with johnny cash on ben keith's christmas album i know sometimes things are kind of pieced together recording from different locations and times did you actually work directly with johnny on that one
1: no, okay. no. He, uh, I mean, we were in the same studio on the same day, but I didn't actually sing with him.
2: Oh,
0: okay. So
1: it's just, you know, Ben was working on that record while we were doing Harvest Moon. So it was one of those things that is like, uh, you know, they take a couple of days off from Harvest Moon and Ben would work on his Christmas record. So, oh, wow. And
0: yeah. then you did a really cool David Bowie cover on the Spiders from Venus album.
1: Oh,
2: A paper boy, but things don't really change. Still lying in the rain, but I never work by. I, try. I, yeah,
0: I, I try. really like that yeah. version of modern love. Was, was that? something that you got to pick or was that a sign to you? How does that work?
1: No, I, I, I was doing that song already. And, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's funny. I tell people all the time that modern love is, is actually a very, very sad song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and so it's like, it's like my version of it. I think I, I came up with the arrangement. It was like two in the morning in Toronto, midsummer on queen street. I was staying at a friend's place. It was so hot. There was no air conditioning. The bars were just getting out on the street. It was just like mayhem outside. And I couldn't, there was no peace inside. Cause I couldn't close the windows cause it was too hot. Oh, and gosh. so that's what came out of that. But, uh, but it's interesting that you mentioned that song because uh, all of the reviews that that record got, every single one mentioned that song and it was very polarizing. They either absolutely loved it and thought I was a genius or they thought it was the worst piece of crap that they've ever heard. Really? And that I should be that, you know, it's like I, sh- I should be exiled for eternity because I defaced this song so badly, uh... you know?
0: Jeez, well, I'm I'm in the I love it camp.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you. I'm probably going to have another go at it at some point. I mean, I recorded it uh, in in a friend of mine's studio, but I think I would do it a little bit differently this time. It's you know, I I I often do it in shows because it still surprises people. You know, they don't even recognize the song until the until the chorus comes up. Oh yeah, and then afterwards they're going, oh my god i didn't even know that that was that song i will never hear that song the same way again you
0: know exactly if i didn't pull up specifically knowing it was on the bowie album i wouldn't have it would it would have taken me until the chorus probably to figure out oh it's this the bowie song (laughs) so your latest album which i've been listening to a a lot over the past week or so one night at giant rock you did that with um victor DiLorenzo. Yes. From the Violent Femmes. How did you meet up with him and, and get this album going?
1: Well, I played bass on this record for a band called Overhaul, uh, which is a UK band. Okay. And, uh, he, and the guy, I think his name's Andy, Andy Gallagher, and he's done some work with Victor in the past. And so Victor and his manager at the time knew about me for From playing on his record. And I guess Victor was looking for somebody to work with. And we just happened to be in the same city at the same time. My, my husband was playing, um, we were in Buffalo and my husband was playing a bar with his band. Um, and, uh, Victor was actually doing some sort of a lecture at the university there at, at SUNY. So, um, his uh, manager arranged for us to have dinner together and do a little meet and greet. And uh, we hit it off. And then from there, we just started talking about how we could, uh, how we could work together and what we were going to do. And I had already been working on, on one at a giant rock. I already had a few songs that were like in various stages of completion, but uh, he kind of wanted to start from scratch. But I thought, well, this is a good place to start because some of these songs are really good, like patchouli boy and, and yeah. the nerve and what else had I already start? Integratron was already recorded and oh, cool. uh, there a couple of other things too. Uh, so we started with that as a core, but then when we got in the studio, we just started writing new stuff and then coming up with new things. And, and uh, you know, he, he really pushed me to do things that I never would have done on my own. It was, it was a, absolutely enlightening, fantastic experience, but it was really intense because, um, you know, this is the first time I've ever actually given my stuff over to a producer before. Oh, really? And, uh, well, I, I have severe hearing loss. So, um, I, it's not that I can't hear anything, but I, there's the tonality of things I can't hear anymore. So, you know, even though I've kind of had a death grip on my own music for most of my life. I'm in a position right now where I don't really trust myself to mix anymore because I just don't have, I don't have that reference anymore. I can't tell whether things are good or bad. You know, I can tell whether things are out of tune and I can tell whether the tone's good, but in terms of balancing things and getting that right, it's like, I I just can't do it. So Uh. it was really hard for me to kind of give that up you know, cause I, I had to really find somebody that I could trust. And I thought, well, I'm just going to have to let it go and, and trust this person because a, I, he's brilliant. And B, this is like the t- chance of a lifetime for me to work with, you know, somebody that I, uh, that I really admire, yeah. you know, artistically and as a person and, uh, see, it's like, Hey, let, let's try something new, you know? yeah. So we would be in the studio and he would like stop me and say, okay, so the next try, the next take we're going to do, why don't you try it this way? And I just kind of like, you know, my brain would be going, What are you crazy? I would never do that. And then (laughs) the other part of my brain saying, let it go. Just do it. You got nothing to lose. Right. Yeah. So I would do that. And like, just take a deep breath and do it. And it was just brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And The engineer, uh, Travis Kasperbauer, said after the first couple of days, he goes, uh, goes, you know, I know what you're doing. (laughs) And I say, what do you mean? And he says, I see the look on your face when he tells you to do things. And and I know that you don't agree with him, but you do it anyway. And he says, you are kicking ass.
2: (laughs) Nice.
1: It was a real revelation to me, like to just to be able to let it go and to have something come back that is so special, that was so incredibly special. Like that record is, uh, it's, you know, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but there's so much heart in it and there's so much soul and uh, there's so much atmosphere and um, yeah. a lot of it has to do with Victor, you know?
0: Well, I love the all the varied styles on the album. It's amazing. I mean, Integratron it's got this super awesome desert vibe to it. And then you go complete 180 with try this. And you've got that awesome sax on it, which, which sounds like Dana Colley playing the sax, who's like my favorite sax player. And.
1: Yeah, Darcy Heppner. He's
0: amazing. Oh, he's now right up there with Dana Colley for me. Yeah,
1: Hamilton on. Oh.
0: Then you've got your new drug.
2: High in your neutral, are you, you seeing things so clear? And if you really gotta go, why don't you leave your body?
0: And, and Amy's song are my two favorites on the album. And it's... Aw,
1: thank you.
0: Your new drug is just got this very slinky, sexy sound to it. And I mean, your voice sounds like <laughs> Karen Carpenter on it, who another person...
2: <laughs> That's
1: I, funny. That's You're not the only person that said that. Oh, really? <laughs> Karen Carpenter on Acid. Yeah. That's what I got. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> that's awesome.
0: I didn't think of the Acid part. Man, I was, see, I told, one of these days I'm gonna get this podcasting thing right. <laughs> but but I love that it ends on Amy's song. It's just such a beautiful song. Yeah,
1: it's epic. It really is. I um, there's a lot. There's a lot going on in there, and yeah, beautiful piano track too. As a matter of fact, I have a, I have a version of that that's just piano and vocal, and it's just. Mm. Absolutely unbelievable. Wow. <sighs> Probably release that at some point soon.
0: Oh, that'd be mm-hmm. great. So, all right, so what are you working on now? Yeah, I know in the past you'd mentioned that you're working on redoing a few things, some of the, some of the music, also redoing well, a bit of the, the book that you released, Being Young.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. So, well, I just got the rights reverted back to me for Being Young. It's actually out of print, but the publisher is going out of business, so uh, everything came back to me. So I have an opportunity to, I was going to, they technically owed me a a mass market paperback. So I was prepared to do a revision on it anyway, but now that it's completely within my control, I want to do something that is a little bit more boundary pushing. And I've actually talked to my brother about being involved, both my brothers about being involved in it too, because, uh, you know, to get their angle on certain aspects of our relationship with our father and, and to be able to kind of juxtapose it because we had very similar experiences, although similar, but different, you know, I mean, basically the same thing happened to all of us, but okay. we all handled it in different ways. And a lot of it has to do with my dad. Like, you know, my, we don't have the same mother, right? So my dad left their mother for my mom. And then eventually he left my mom for another woman. Oh, uh, wow. But it all kind of happened, we were me and Neil were about the same age when it happened to us, right? Oh wow. And so when when my dad split up with their mom, Neil went with his mom to Winnipeg. And Bob, my oldest brother, stayed with my dad in Toronto. And dad tried to take him under his wing and turn him into a writer. And uh I think, you know, I can't imagine I mean, we're always looking for our parents' approval. Yeah. I can't imagine that was easy, you know, for for Neil. Although, you know, when I look at my experience, my mother was an alcoholic and, um, you know, there was a lot, there was some mental health issues there and she really did not want me to be a musician. I mean, it was like her worst nightmare that I decided to take that on as a profession, you know. And she never really got music she was never really into it but the difference between me and neil is that his mother was so behind him she was so encouraging and she was like she would call into the radio station anonymously and said hey you know if you're you know to like go on the air saying yeah. you know to go see his band
2: oh wow and, uh,
1: oh yeah you know yeah. It's, and, and I hear stories about her and I think, wow, you know, I I wonder what would have happened to me if my mother was, was like, got behind me like that. I mean, no regrets or anything. And I don't blame my parents for anything that they did, but that it's really interesting to see where we ended up with similar circumstances. And we're very much alike in so many ways, like the, you know, nature versus nurture thing. I mean, the nature thing is very, very strong with us all. So you know?
0: <laughs> that, wow. That getting that perspective in, in the book, that would be amazing. That'd be a fascinating read.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good book anyway. I, I, uh, it's funny when I got the, when I got the, uh, print copies back from the publisher and I, I just started skimming through it and it's just like, Hey, this is pretty good. It's good stuff. You yeah. know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, can, I it can only get better. And I think I'm a little braver now too. I, I, I'm not as afraid of, of, uh, talking about like I I you know I I don't really feel that there's a reason that I should lie. I mean I would rather just omit things than lie about it, right? So if I'm gonna talk about something, even if it hurts, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it, right?
0: Makes sense. And
1: uh, and there's a lot of things that I don't talk about in the book that I think I could probably fill in a lot of the between the lines aspects of it with the with a new version.
0: Throughout this you've mentioned new music that you're working on. So what's What's coming down the pike? What can we hopefully expect from you in in the future? Hopefully the near future.
1: Well, a couple of things. I mean, one thing is just a a kind of a mutual project I'm working on with a few friends of mine. I have a very dear friend in Los Angeles who's going through uh, chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer right now. And he's a a brilliant songwriter. And uh, he's written a lot of songs with a lot of people. And uh, me and about 26 other people have all... Chosen songs of his to cover. Oh, wow. And uh, and another mutual friend of ours is, is putting it together as a record for him. And, uh, so that's what I've been most recently working on, but I just set the tracks off today. So that's kind of my part of that is over. Okay. And, uh, eventually once we can travel again, I have every intention of, of, uh, me and Victor and I definitely intend to work together again. So awesome. that, that'll be coming up. And uh, I mean, there was a couple of songs that we cut that never made it to the record. And then I've got a couple of other things going on too. Okay, And I've been playing a lot of piano the past couple of years and, uh, I had written some new songs. And, um, one thing I was working on pre COVID, uh, was I was going to do some live broadcast from my house with, uh, with a, a string player that I work with named Saskia Tompkins. She plays violin, viola, and nickel harpa and we were kind of working up some of my old, uh, brain flower repertoire and some new stuff. And we were going to do these live broadcasts and then COVID hit. So our rehearsal schedule kind of went down the toilet and then everybody started doing these live streaming things. And I thought, eh, it's kind of, kind of half-assed a lot of it. I mean, God bless everybody that's doing it and you know, you, you got to keep it going, but, uh, but I want to do something epic, you know? Um, And, uh, you know, my idea of Epic is sometimes more than I can afford. (laughs) But, uh, but, uh, there's a local theater here that has a really good setup, And I was just talking to the owner last night about going in and doing, doing the shows there. And he said, well, you could either stream it or you could like film it and stop and start. And that way you can get like perfect takes and stuff. And I think that's what I'm going to do. So we'll make, make a film of these songs. There's probably about maybe 15 songs or something like that. And, oh. uh, and then put together a little film around it and, you know, probably call it brain flower because uh, honestly, that whole situation never really came to fruition. So might as well, uh, it's, it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm rehashing shit that everybody's heard before this is right. going to be everybody.
2: Right.
0: Yeah. Well, before I let you go, you mentioned, in our correspondence before this, a performance anxiety story about your guitar player having a meltdown on set at one point.
1: Oh, yeah. That was on the movie. Um, the Dave Kiner, who is in Ist, uh, of course, you know, the, the band was in, in the film. And there's a couple of real Spinal Tap moments about this because, <laughs> honestly, you know, I mean... <laughs> Anyway, I'll get into that <laughs> later. Anyway, so, Kiner, who is a bit of a loudmouth anyway, and he's like, we're filming in Metalwork Studios in Toronto, Mississauga, actually. It's a beautiful studio. And uh, so, he's got a scene that he's supposed to be doing. He's got one line, okay. one line that he's supposed to do, that he's supposed to be standing there in the kitchen at making a cup of tea. And he's like saying to the camera, I'm going to show you how to make my special herbal tea or something like that. You know, okay. that's all I had to say, but he went out on the loading dock and he smoked a bunch of weed with, uh, with another guy who was playing my engineer, Bill. Okay. And, uh, they got like completely wasted out of it. And he locked himself in the control room. Cause he had like, the, the fear, oh. you know, the marijuana induced fear. Right. And- he wouldn't come out. So Julian finally had to go in there. Julian talked him into letting him in there. And he he sat there with him for like 20 minutes and kind of talked him down and got him to come out and and do something. But he, afterwards he's going, well, you know, I'm not an actor. I'm a musician. I'm, you know, this is not my thing. And, and I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I want to do this, you know, and stuff like that. And he was just like, so freaked out about oh it, but ironically, okay. So by the end of the, the whole thing, like after we'd done the music video and we were just doing some pickup shots at the end, he, by, by that point, he had pretty much lost the fear. Right. <laughs> and you couldn't shut him up. I mean, you just like turn the camera on and he would just go. Right. Oh, okay. And, and ironically, he's become a, a movie extra and uh, I've seen him in a lot of stuff, <laughs> you <laughs> oh, know, and strange. I'm thinking, here's the guy that said he couldn't do it. This is not his thing. He, you know, he's a musician. He's not an actor and stuff like that. And I thought, oh yeah.
0: There we go. <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> <end>? <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, Asher. thank you so much for spending so much time with me. My pleasure. Where can people follow you and, and find the new releases keep up with what you're doing uh the social media websites what, okay to to i'm
1: redoing i'm redoing my website so i i hesitate to to give that out right okay. now because i gotta blow i gotta blow the whole thing up but it'll be you know you can just google astrid young and you'll find it i have plenty of videos on youtube uh, including the bleed video from from haunted from the movie which is uh it's pretty crazy. I sent you the movie picture as yes. uh, the movie poster and yeah, I, I am covered in blood. Yeah. I'm literally <laughs> covered in blood by the end of it. And it looks so real. It looks incredibly real. Like I'm lying on this white cyclorama just covered in blood. Right. Wow. And it's pretty cool. And, uh, yeah. And then there's a bunch of other videos that I made there. And as far as my music, I mean, you can find it on any streaming service, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, iTunes, Apple Music, you know, wherever you get your music, I'm there. So, and Ist, too. Do do seek out Ist? The record's called Pakalolo Paniolo. You won't find it under my name because it's under Ist, I-S-T. But there's also, just to confuse matters, there's another band called Ist from the UK, which is not me right? right so i think it's easier probably to see uh, to search pacalolo paniolo and then you'll find it because it's also on all the streaming services
0: what does that mean what is is it there...
1: uh, marijuana cowboy
0: oh there we go okay <laughs>
1: <laughs> well you know we're, we're a stoner band right and uh we're trying to figure out what to call the record and i thought well you know if we're stoner right we have to embrace something so I might as well embrace the weed oh. plus it's really fun to say well <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, thank you so much this has been so much fun i really do appreciate you spending all this time with me
1: my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, oh, and also I should say, uh, you can find me on Instagram at Wanda Ples. you know, you probably search my name. You'll come up for that, but it's under Wanda Ples. And the, uh, the meaning behind that is Wanda. My first name is Vendela. And ang- if you anglicize that it's Wanda. So that's part of that. Me and Neil call each other by our other names. Sometimes <laughs> his middle name is Percival. So yeah, yeah he's, He's Percy, and I'm Wanda. Oh, man. Uh, and Plez is actually the name of the character in uh, in my movie, right? In the movie haunted, so right. Yeah. Wanda Plez, that's me.
0: Well, it's funny. <laughs> a, f- a former guest on the the podcast who's become a friend. Um, her name's uh, Autumn Whitaker. She's uh, in a band called the Hawk Percival, and she named it after Neil's middle name.
1: <laughs> so. Well, the interesting thing is he's named after his our grandfather. And our grandfather's name wasn't Percival. It was Percy, just straight up Percy.
0: (laughs) They formalized his name.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when it freezes when you've got like this big smile on your face. It looks great. (laughs) It's better than (laughs) like,
0: (laughs) you know, it's better than that face.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, was the other times you looked worried, like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I, I promise I'll let you have your evening now. (laughs)
1: absolutely my pleasure thank Uh, you so much remember when the valley used to be valley before the tide came
3: What'd do you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill?
2: Yes! <laughs> my is dead! My is
3: right there! From airship